Welcome to episode one of Keep It Brief. We are your hosts, Sarah Catherine Sisk. And I am Camden Mulder. So we are college students. I am currently studying economics and journalism. And I am an American studies major and a journalism minor. In this show, we're basically going to be getting into the nitty gritty of different Supreme Court cases and their historical context and their modern relevance. And we will detail how exactly that's going to go down later in the episode. So make sure you stick around for that. And on this show, we're going to do our absolute best to explain everything in the most simple of terms to make this really easy to understand for absolutely everyone because these topics can be a little bit confusing. But to start us off, SK, I believe you have a really interesting and fun little story about a moment in the Supreme Court to share with us. So if you want to get right into that and fill everybody in. Sounds good. Yeah. So Kimmin, is a tomato or a fruit or a vegetable? Do you know? That is such a good question. I have always been under the impression that, you know, after being enlightened that a tomato is in fact a fruit. Yeah, I would I would have to agree. Um, maybe for the first six or seven years of, of my life, I think I was a tomato fruit denier. But, you know, elementary school came around and I figured it out. And since then, I really haven't looked back. But yeah. So basically, a fruit is a plant's ripened ovary. So the tomato is just as much of a fruit as an apple or a banana or any other, you know, fruit you might have found in your lunch in elementary school, except maybe not you because you don't like fruit so much. But that's besides the point. Um, Thank you for sharing that with <laughs> listeners. <laughs> in any case, um, the Supreme Court seems to have had at one point in time a different understanding about what exactly a fruit was. Um, so in the case of Nix versus Hedden back in the 1880s, the Port of New York was taxing tomatoes as vegetables when they were being imported. The Nix family who happened to import a lot of tomatoes, I don't know for what, that's not really my business, um, basically sued the Port of New York and specifically Edward Hedden, who's the collector of the Port of New York. Uh, they were trying to win back all of the taxes that they had paid on those imports because, you know, they felt like they had a really solid case. They have the objective scientific definition of fruit being that it's a, a ripened plant ovary. So they're like, yeah, we got this in the bag, right? We're getting our money back. You'd think so. Yeah, I, I would think so. But no, the Supreme Court actually sided with Edward Hedden and they declared that tomatoes are vegetables. They decided to follow the spirit of the law rather than the exact letter of the law. And their reasoning was since most people consider savory items like tomatoes to be vegetables. So they're like the law, you know, should include tomatoes under the vegetable umbrella. Therefore, they can be taxed when you're importing them. Um, that specific tax law in question, which was the tariff of 1883, is now long gone, but it does actually have ruling implications for related cases today. For example, the United States imports pillows that are shaped like stuffed animals. I'm thinking it's probably something like a pillow pet. I don't know for sure where those are manufactured, but something like that. But basically, the question is, are they pillows or are they stuffed animals? Um, the question wouldn't really matter except for the fact that pillows are tariffed and stuffed animals aren't. That's complicated. Right. Yeah. So I think they actually, I'm not entirely sure, but I'm pretty sure they ended up ruling that they would be taxed like a pillow because aside from the little animal head on it, it looks like a pillow. And functions as a pillow. It does. But I also think it's important to consider the fact that if, you know, they're trying to rule that they be taxed as pillows because they're worried that people are going to start buying pillow pets instead of actual pillows in order to avoid 
an import tariff. I think that's a little silly because it's, you know, you, with with common reasoning, you can realize that pillow pets are for kids and maybe a couple super cheap adults might be buying them as a substitute for their pillows. But ultimately, you know, the pillow pets are, are not going to be uh, taken, taking the market for pillows. Definitely not. I'd love to see a full grown adult with a full bed of just pillow pets because they're avoiding trying to pay a tariff. And I that's such a great point. Asking, I think even going back to the tomato case, which, as you explained, is so interconnected with this. In what world is someone going to buy a tomato instead of an apple? That's just not going to happen. Exactly. So using the Supreme Court's own reasoning, it's the spirit of the law. No one's going to put a tomato in a fruit salad, but also no adult is going to decorate their their bed with pillow pets in, instead of pillows. So, you know, interesting to think about. So what is our podcast about? The purpose of Keep It Brief is to inform the listeners about very important points of um, Supreme Court cases in a concise and hopefully entertaining way. So each week we're going to talk about different court cases, different cultural issues, um, give some historical context and some emerging political policies that stem from these cases and that shape the everyday American's life. Um, These sorts of topics in our experience have been become kind of convoluted and they're difficult to understand. And so our hope is that we can make this information as accessible and as straightforward as possible. Um, Just as you guys are learning, we are too. So we will do everything in our power to make sure we are 100% correct the first time. But if anything ever comes up and we do get something wrong, it will be our number one priority to correct and remedy that as quickly as possible. But in today's episode, we're going to unpack the role and structure of the Supreme Court. Camden's going to get into some more specifics on that in order to set context for future episodes. And so you can always come back and listen to this as sort of a guide and a, a, a reference tool in the future. But Camden, can you tell us a little bit about, so what what is the Supreme Court? I would absolutely love to tell you about what the Supreme Court is. First and foremost, I'm just going to read a little definition. It says, The Supreme Court of the United States is the highest court in the federal judiciary of the United States. It has ultimate appellate jurisdiction over all federal court cases and over state court cases that involve a point of U.S. constitutional or federal law. That's dense, to say the least. Seriously. And, you know, reading that, just looking at it, you know, from face value, it's a lot to understand. So... To get back, you know, to just the Constitution, first and foremost, Article 3 is what establishes our court system within the United States. So thanks to that part of our lovely Constitution, we have the court system today. The Supreme Court is basically just a massive umbrella court that has the power to rule over all of the other ones when the issues have to do specifically with constitutional discrepancies or confusions. The smaller courts are created by Congress. So those smaller courts are, as I said earlier, underneath the big Supreme Court. And then everyone has the opportunity to work their case up to the Supreme Court and have it decided on the national stage. And this process, you know, can be a little confusing, which is why it's important to take time to understand the basics. Good thing there are so many wonderful sources to help you learn just that. Like our podcast, Keep It Brief, on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM WRFH. So you're talking about the process through which a case actually reaches the Supreme Court. Can you give our listeners a little bit um, more specific detail on, on how that happens? Of course. So just to have a 
lawsuit in general. You have two sides. One person did something or something happened, and then the other side usually is not happy about it. So the lawsuit is formed, and when you take it to court, it always starts at those smaller courts that I was referring to earlier. And if one of the sides isn't happy with the decision made, they have the opportunity to appeal that decision. When you appeal a decision, you basically apply for these different opportunities to move that court case to a higher court and you keep moving up through the system. You okay, can have, so it's like so it's like if, if you ask your mom for something and she says no, so you go ask your dad. 100%. That is okay. exactly how this works. That's what I'm hearing. Yes. And, you know, then when you get to the Supreme Court, that is similar, I guess you could say, when you ask your mom, your mom says no, you ask your dad, your dad says no, and then you call your grandparents. Right. Because your grandparents always say yes. <laughs> so true, except for when they don't. Except for when they don't. And actually, the Supreme Court says no quite a bit. So about 7,000 people actually request that the Supreme Court review their case every year. And, you know, they just don't have time for that. They only hear about 100 to 150 cases per year. Dang. I was going to say, I feel like that feels like a small number proportionately to the, the 7,000 cases that are requested and even more proportionally to like all the cases that occur in a year. But I guess if you think about it, it's like if there's nine of them and, you know, 365 days in a year, hopefully they don't have to work on on holidays and stuff. <laughs> I would hope not. Um, but like that, that's really not, you know, that is that is a pretty, pretty meaty career. For sure. And the cases that they end up selecting, they're very specific about the reasons why they select them. They tend to have some sort of national importance or, as I said earlier, there's a direct connection to a specific constitutional issue or discrepancy. Mm -hmm. Maybe there's a difference in opinion between two federal courts below them. So there's very specific reasons why the Supreme Court chooses the cases they do. So for a case to even have the opportunity to then be given the opportunity to be reviewed by the Supreme Court, four out of the nine justices have to vote in favor of hearing the case. If four out of the nine justices find your plea compelling enough, they then will have their law clerks look at your case and do a lot of work on it um, before you actually get to the trial. Okay, interesting. And their law clerks, I'm assuming those aren't appointed like like the Supreme Court justices? No, definitely not. Law clerks are the cream of the crop, if you will, of law school graduates. So these people, they just graduated from top law schools and they're looking to obviously become lawyers, get into the legal profession. So they're then hired by the Supreme Court justices to go through this um, pre-trial process. What that means is the law clerks write basically just these huge briefs mm -hmm. for their Supreme Court justice to read. This just saves time because as we said earlier, they're so busy, 100 to 150 cases a year. They don't have time to do extensive research on right. each case. So it's it's like it's like spark notes. It's exactly like spark notes, actually. Makes so much sense. I can see why they would need those law clerks. I bet these law clerks who, you know, graduated from these top universities are so happy to know <laughs> that we think they're equivalent to spark notes. I mean, basically, though, there's nothing wrong with that. Spark notes is a wonderful, wonderful resource. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so 
as I was saying, the law clerks will write up these briefs and then the justices will read them. The justices then are able to meet and because they had the opportunity to get the lowdown on the cases, they then will advocate for all the different cases that they think deserve the opportunity to be heard on the national stage. Good to know. At this point, we have another little vote that happens. Instead of four out of nine, we need five out of nine justices to vote to hear the case. At that point, if you get the five out of nine votes, your case is added to the docket, which is basically just the queue for all the cases that the Supreme Court is going to hear that year. So obviously then with the court case, there's, you know, as any other court case, there's two sides. So with the Supreme Court, there's the petitioner and the respondent. So that's analogous to, you know, like the prosecution and the defense. But ironically enough, with the Supreme Court, since you have those nine judges, you know, that have been appointed by the president and they've gone through the whole Senate confirmation hearing, there's actually no jury or anything like that. So they are solely deciding this case themselves. And they do it all in one day. Wow. So they have one single day. Each side has 30 minutes to present their oral argument. And the justice asks tons of questions. There's, you know, about 100 pages of legal documents that they can read through from each side, things like that. But in one day, they hear your case. So this is literally giving you know, the 30 seconds of fame or five minutes of fame, whatever that phrase is that people say. It's it's a quick turnaround. Okay. After they hear all of this, two times per week, there's a little conference. They meet together, and this is when they vote on the conclusion of all these cases. So the youngest justice, youngest is in, in terms of how recently they were added to the court, votes first, and then you go up in ascending order of superiority. Interesting. Okay, so those two times per week with these justice conferences, so then they're, they'll are they be voting on multiple cases during those times, right? Yes, I believe so, yes. Okay, makes sense. Is there any particular reason why the most junior justice would vote first, you know? I'm not sure, but... That's such a good question. I didn't see anything detailing that when I was throwing all this together, but honestly could just be something as simple as hazing. <laughs> so valid. That makes sense. So I know, I mean, I'm sure this is uh, more contended and it it's not supposed to happen, but I know in the House and Senate and sometimes people will trade votes for certain pieces of pieces of legislation and stuff, even though they're not supposed to. Do you know if there's any sort of checks and balances to keep that from happening within, you know, these private voting sessions? You know, that's such a good question. Obviously, like you said, that's not supposed to happen. Um, the Supreme Court in general, they are they were created to be the least powerful branch of government is what a lot of people argue that the founders did. And so not to mansplain it to you, but the main checks and balances are between the legislative and the executive branch. Also, the fact that they have the lifetime tenure is supposed to help stop those sorts of things. You know, when people in Congress are trading votes and things like that, it's to help get, you know, different pieces of legislation that they want passed, passed to aid their constituents to then help them get reelected. Whereas with the Supreme Court, they have no incentive to get reelected to have their position renewed. So 
in theory, that sort of structure is meant to help mm. with that. That makes sense. I guess it's, yeah. I mean, in design, I think it's, I don't know. The job security to me doesn't seem like that would be the only thing that would give you the incentive to act honorably. Well, not personally. I would, you know, I'm not saying that I'm immoral. <laughs> yeah, what are, you, what are you getting at? <laughs> but I'm just saying like, you know, that job security, it's like most government jobs, you get a pretty, pretty nice pension. But um, well, I glad- feel like there's a lot of other things too. You know what I mean? To, to, to think that they're like not going to be swayed at all by any other money or power, you know, whether or not it's above the table, it, you know, would not be above the table, but exactly. And I'm really glad you're bringing this up actually, because I think in the future, this would be a really interesting topic to dedicate a whole episode to, to you know, go idea. through different founding documents and try to understand why they decided to give the Supreme Court a lifetime tenure, especially when our founders were so critical and so concerned with the monarchy that they just broke away from. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting concept. That is, it is, it is. That's so true. So we'll have to check back in with that. But back to, so we, you just talked about, so they just voted, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. After they vote, then eventually, and this is so dependent on how the vote goes, whether it's unanimous, whether it's split, things like that, the results will eventually get delivered to the public. Everyone will be able to see it. It details who sided with the majority, who sided with the minority, who was a dissenting vote, all of that. And then also they'll write different uh, briefs of their opinions along with the way they voted to sort of help the public understand. But once again, I've read a lot of those briefs and it the opinion briefs are so dense, so hard to understand. So that just adds, you know, another nuance to the difficulties in understanding exactly what the Supreme Court does. Yeah, I can imagine reading that stuff, you know, it's like a little bit off-putting at first. And if you're not super motivated to, you know, go line by line and basically translate because it can feel like a different language, I can understand why a lot of people would be, you know, turned away from even attempting to keep up with those sorts of things in the news because it's like, you know, where do you even start? Honestly, The perfect place to start is right here with us on Keep It Brief, brought to you by Radio Free Hillsdale, channel 101.7 FM, WRFH. So true. That's a great point. So, guys, I hope you enjoyed those um, mechanics that Camden sort of walked us through. That was super informational. I know that was a lot to try to explain in such a short time so good job cam thank you um going forward how is the show going to work basically we'll take the time to break down each case and explain why it's consequential so we'll start by introducing the topic of each case and try to explain the historical context and hopefully give some meaningful perspective to understand why something that maybe we would think right now isn't super relevant or you wouldn't care about a lot why you know For people back then, it would have been something that was very important. After we touch on all of that, we will review and unpack the case brief. The case brief being the most important parts of a judicial decision and, you know, the case itself. And finally, go into the ruling. What happened? Why is it important? Who does this affect? How does the case create precedent? Does it change a precedent that's already been set? How is the court going to use this case to help them rule other cases? So tune in next week when we will be kicking off the series with our first official Supreme Court case explanation episode. Thank you guys so much for listening to our very first episode of our new podcast. Keep it brief on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM WRFH.
don't, don't worry. worry. We, we will always keep, keep it brief. brief. Should we do that again? Yeah. The don't worry. I didn't know you were going to do it, so. I figured we were. Oh, I thought you were kind of like. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Don't worry. We'll always keep it brief. Okay. Don't, don't worry. worry. We'll, we'll always keep it brief. brief.